0: Listening to Two Friends in a Book with Maddie and Matt. And this week we're gonna be talking about the book The Butcher and the Wren by Elena Urquhart. Dun dun dun. Anyway, we are back for episode two. Anywho. <laughs> and we are very excited to talk about this one. It's been a hot minute. It has been. Uh, long story short, we were in Scotland and uh it was Tumultuous? Yeah. That's okay. the way to say it.
1: Our good friend and co-host Maddie decided that it was a really great idea to break her ankle on the top of a mountain and be airlifted off said mountain. <laughs> um, it, w- it was fun. It's, it's been, it was a great experience. How,
0: how has your six weeks since been, Maddie? <laughs> you know, I just want to preface with it was not my idea to go hiking. In the middle of winter in a foreign country. I just tagged along with my good friend and co-host Nat here. So we're just going to leave it at that. And, you know, I'm recovering. So here we are. My ankle is not broken anymore. But I cannot walk. (laughs) Okay. The synopsis of the book is apparently my duty today. Because our good friend and co-host Nat here has some professional expertise in the field of death, and I'll explain that in a bit, or she'll explain that in a bit, because that got you hooked, didn't it? (laughs) I bet it did. So we have our two main characters, I would say, is Ren Muller. And she is the pathologist of this book. She is the main character of the book. She yes. happens to be a pathologist. A forensic pathologist. There's oh, a yes. There's a Oh, uh, yes. So she is the forensic pathologist in the story. And she is trying to figure out who this serial killer is throughout the book. And we actually meet him. Uh, right away on page one. It starts off with his perspective. And his name is Jeremy. Sounds like a lovely chap. Those damn J names, man. I know. It's always the J names. It is always the J names. And it's just, you can't trust them. Um, and his nickname in the book is the Bayou Butcher. So, it's great nickname. I... Don't know how else to describe him other as other than the I, Bayou Butcher.
1: I think it's important to know, with the whole Bayou theme, that the book takes place in New Orleans. Uh, oh, That yes. is our... The, the back, setting. That's the setting for our book is in New Orleans. Um, I was there once when I was 14, and I don't remember any of it. According to this book, there are bayous there, though. And Apparently. Hence the name, The Bayou Butcher.
0: I have never been to New Orleans, but I would assume there are bayous there. It's pretty... bayou the same thing as a swamp? I think so. Okay. I don't know. We're obviously not professionals on the Louisiana geography. I think a
1: better name than Bayou
0: Butcher would have been Swamp Daddy. Swamp Daddy! Aww. That would have been fun. That would have been so fun. Jeremy the Swamp Daddy. Aw. It's kinda cute. Little term of endearment. So right away. I'm just gonna start with the first line in this book. Jeremy hears the screaming through the vents. I mean, come on. That Okay. (laughs) That compels me right away. Like I was like, that's yeah. So what I what we love about this book is It's a dual timeline, and we get to hear Jeremy's perspective. It alternates every chapter, I think. Uh, It starts with Jeremy's perspective, and then the next chapter is Ren Muller's perspective. um, And she's the forensic pathologist, in case you guys forgot. Um, (laughs) And she kind of has a... I don't want to call him a sidekick, but like a uh, co-forensic pathologist. And I think his name... I just know his last it's name. Incorrect.
1: He is a cop. He's a detective. Oh, Larue. He's the,
0: Larue is the police
1: detective oh. who is the main investigator in the Bayou Butcher case. Okay, and okay. she is the forensic pathologist who is doing the autopsy. So they work for closely. All the so they work closely, but they do not so, work
0: for the same entity. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. So yeah, I mean the main people we're going to talk about right away in the beginning is Red Muller, Larue, and Jared. So, um, yeah, it goes back and forth between Jeremy and Ren's perspective, and we kind of get into the psyche of Jeremy's mind, and it's a little disturbing, um, because he basically kidnaps people, uh, puts them in his basement. Tortures them. Torture, yep. You always have to have torture. Uh, and then he puts them in this, like, he calls it, like, a, uh, like, a hunting game, where he puts them in, like, his, ba- and he lives on a lot of land. He has, and apparently his backyard is just a complete swamp bayou area, and so he puts these people that he kidnaps uh, on this land, and you find out the three people that he kidnaps are named Matt, Emily, and Katie and uh jeremy here our good old serial killer is um he used to be a med student and so he like went by the fake name cal while he was in med school and met his fellow classmate emily while in med school and he kind of becomes friends with her and then she you know ends up trusting him and he ends up taking her and he is The third, or she is the third uh, victim in this game that he's going to do with these other two people, Matt and Katie, and he throws them in the swamp backyard area and then basically hunts them in the nighttime, blaring music. He has night vision, I guess. Yes, night vision. And then he has like cameras set up everywhere. And speakers. And speakers. So he can hear them. And he can talk to them. Yep. But they really can't get out because it's like... A huge property with electric fences all around. So even if they tried to hop the fence, they would
1: not make it. He sets sets him off in this field swamp area and says... Good "Good, luck. Good luck. I'm coming to kill ya. And kill he he does.
0: And kill he does. And uh, he even says, you know, if you can make it out of here, you will survive. But obviously they don't know that they won't be able to make it out of there. So... Anyway, Ren is, you know, finding more and more bodies and she just knows that it's the Bayou butcher. Um, and she's very invested in this case and tracking him down. And yeah, I think I think we should leave it at that and then dig in. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I was like, oh, uh I we should have also mentioned in the beginning. That the author of this book, um, Elena Urquhart, is the co-host of the podcast Morbid. And so she wrote this book kind of around the time that Ashley Flowers also wrote her book, who is the uh, host of Crime Junkie. So I don't know if they're just trying to compete with each other, but here we go. That's Elena-
1: she, I don't know if she was previously or if she is currently, but she was an autopsy technician. So yep. she assisted pathologists in doing autopsies. So given her background as a true crime podcaster and an autopsy technician, I would expect the book to have a lot of factual information about how not only autopsies are done, but how also death investigations are done because the two fields kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work in the same field that the main character, Ren, works in. And I will just say right off the bat, I was quite disappointed with a lot of the content of the book. Uh, So like Maddie said, it's a dual perspective, dual timeline, going between the serial killer and the pathologist timeline. Now, I think the stuff that she wrote from the serial killer's perspective was pretty good. I very much enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. He was your typical incel bad guy, but she wrote it well. The issue, or my issue with the book, comes when she's writing from Ren's perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. I would agree. Uh, I even, while I was reading this book, I loved Jeremy's perspective so much that I dreaded, actually, reading from Ren's perspective. And I remember while I was reading chapters from her perspective, I would look to see how many pages I had left just before I could get to Jeremy's. Because I just, it was just so, like, it was very well done from his point of view.
1: Oh, it's not, I, it's, it's not even that I disliked Ren's perspective. And I wasn't dreading listening to her perspective. It was just that I didn't like how inaccurate a lot of the things she was talking about
0: Mm -hmm. was
1: like if you're if you're going to write a book from the perspective of of a forensic pathologist you at least need to be scientifically accurate with what they're doing on a day-to-day basis but also just like the general terminology
0: i agree <laughs> and i think you should go into your specifics go
1: into my specifics okay yes well my my scope of the field is pretty limited to one state right i'm not working in louisiana so maybe things are different down there But in my time working in the field, I never once have seen a forensic pathologist actually go out on a scene. Uh, Forensic pathologists typically stay in the autopsy suite and in the office because they have a lot of autopsies to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a lot of records to review to determine cause and manner of death for the people they're doing the autopsies on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to say that a pathologist couldn't go on scene and doesn't. They very well might in other jurisdictions. They just don't in my jurisdiction. Uh, But I do know that if a pathologist is going on scene, he or she is absolutely not the one that's going to be doing all of the dirty work. That's for the police officers, the deputy coroners, the death investigators. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pathologists are not going to be the ones getting down and dirty, moving the bodies, lifting things, touching evidence. That's not going to happen, for sure.
0: No. Well, because I think, you know, even in the name, death investigator... Those are the people that are investigating the deaths well, yeah. on so, scene.
1: Death investiga- in, in our jurisdiction, death investigators and deputy coroners do essentially the same job. It's just a different title. Very different from a forensic pathologist. And typically, the death investigator and the deputy coroner are the eyes and the ears of the pathologist on scene because they aren't mm-hmm. coming to scene. So oh. we inform them of what... We see on scene and what we've been told about the circumstances. Whether we think, uh, whether we think the circumstances being told to us are accurate with how the death looks mm-hmm. to us. So we're their eyes and ears. They're typically not coming out and seeing it for themselves. They rely on our account and our
0: photos that we take. Oh, I gotcha. I got it. See, and you even said too that. You know, you're not sure how it's done in Louisiana. But I do want to say that Elena Urquhart is not from Louisiana. I don't don't know what state she's from. Um, I'm sure morbid fans know where she's from. But she's not from Louisiana. And a lot of people are very confused why she wrote this story in Louisiana. uh, Because I just know from my experience writing i tend to write in cities that i lived in so uh yeah when i write stories i have to do it where i live just because that's where you're gonna get the most accurate information unless you do a lot of which i don't know she may she might have done a lot of research on louisiana i have no idea but apparently she didn't because didn't you look up Oh, she's from Boston? Apparently. Google is saying she's from Boston, but a That's lot of- very different than Louisiana.
1: <laughs> a lot of the reviews I was reading said that this book was, writ- was written as if- It was written by someone who's never been to New Orleans and doesn't actually know a whole lot about the city, uh, which I'm not a writer. I frankly would be a pretty awful writer, but I feel like if you're going to write a book, you need to write about what you know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know it, you need to take the step to do the research to write about it. Which, being a true crime podcaster, I would have to assume that the author is very familiar with researching.
0: Well, oh, yeah, because, I mean, in the back of the book here, it says she received yeah. degrees in criminal justice, psychology, and biology. Yeah, for especially for research. Those are all pretty research-heavy fields. Which is why it's very strange that there's some inaccurate information mm-hmm. in this book which is why we got expert nat <laughs> over here
1: i wouldn't go as far to say i'm as that i'm an expert but well you're you're you're, you're I more do, knowledgeable that i am. i know about things from my experiences in the field a lot so the basis of this book at least from ren's perspective is that they keep finding bodies of the bayou butcher uh, and she, she is the pathologist who does the autopsies for those bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's also the pathologist who's going on scene and doing the scene investigations, which we've already addressed. Um, one thing, I think it's in her very first chapter from Ren's perspective that they talk about is how she knows that the time of death was 30 hours prior to this person. I don't know if it was a male or a female being found because of the liver mortis on his body. So if you don't know what liver mortis is, that's uh, blood pooling. When you die, um, the blood in your body pools to the lowest points of gravity. So if you're laying on your back when you die, your back is going to get red. Uh, And that's liver. Now, you can get estimated times of death with liver. Uh, You will never be able to get a definitive, he's been dead for 30 hours based on liver alone. Uh, She also talks about how, based on the rigor mortis, she can tell that he's been dead for 30 hours. Same concept. You can get general periods. You can't get a definitive time because there are so many factors that play into how rigor mortis and liver mortis appear in different people. It's going to depend on your body composition, the microbiome of your gut, um, the environment that you're found in, your clothing. There are so many different factors to it you're not able to determine a 100% definitive, this is the time he died because of mortis or rigor mortis. And I feel like as an autopsy tech, um, and again, from my my perspective, the autopsy techs that I've met and that I've worked with aren't typically leaving the autopsy suite. They're working in the autopsy suite, helping with autopsies. So they're not the ones going on scene. But those are pretty general things that I feel like anybody in the field, regardless of whether you're working in an autopsy suite or out in the field, should know and do know. And I know that this is a fiction book and you're she's writing it to appeal to the general masses. Like um, me
0: who have no idea about <laughs> liver mortis. Is that how you pronounce it? Liver mortis. Oh, live.
1: That's how I pronounce it. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but that's how our office uses it.
0: It's Um, probably not liver mortis.
1: (laughs) She's writing it to appeal to the general masses, and it's going to be a lot like the true crime shows that you see on TV, your your criminal minds, your bones, where it's not going to be super factually accurate to the actual field. But from somebody coming from the field, I would expect them to write it as accurate as possible to more appropriately represent the field to the general population.
0: Well, and I feel like she's, she uses a lot of big words a lot of lingo where I the average reader who is not in this field I'm like wow that sure that that sounds right because I don't I don't know I don't know if that's right so I feel like though she's almost trying to sound like she has all her facts and knows what she's talking about because that's what it seems like to me but then when you actually have someone like you who is in this field and knows way more about it than I do, you catch all these so that's why it's really confusing to me. It's like she's using all these impressive terms and it sounds like she knows what she's talking about and she has an impressive background in you know, in this subject, but then she's just not there's a lot of there's a lot of holes in her in her facts. And in the story itself, there's a lot of, a lot of plot holes. But that's that's a <laughs> whole separate thing. But
1: moving on, moving on. Uh, so uh, it jumps back and forth from Jeremy's perspective to Ren's perspective. And Ren, uh, <laughs> it seems like almost every chapter from Ren's perspective, they're finding another body, which is not they they didn't actually find a body every chapter. It just yeah, they're finding so many bodies of the Bayou Butcher. Um, and each one she's going to see in uh, doing the investigation, finding some crucial piece of evidence um, that's leading them to finding Jeremy. And at one point she uh, I don't know if she took the weekend off or what, but she goes back into the office and she's super stressed out because she's got to deal with the bayou butcher, but then there's these other cases that have been coming in as well, uh, and she has Uh, some of her, I don't know if it's junior pathologists or autopsy technicians or who, but she assigns- I think uh, they are like
0: her interns.
1: Her interns. She assigns other autopsies to other people working in her office. One of the autopsies that she assigns to one of these other people, she calls a uh, straightforward suicide. I took issue with that just because Again, in the field, there's really no such thing as a straightforward suicide. And coming from somebody in the field, you should know not to use that terminology. Every situation, every death, regardless of the circumstances of the manner, is going to be different. So there's no such thing as a straightforward death. Yeah. You could have a 90-year-old woman dying in a nursing home. It still wouldn't be straightforward because there's going to be something unique about it. Right. Um, the other thing that I was confused about confused about at that section actually is she she gives these new cases to these other people and she says that she's never seen these bodies but then she tells them there's no trauma on the bodies. but how do you know that there's not trauma if, if you've you never seen, seen them if you just open the file folder mm. S- very small detail right I was just a little confused by that but yeah she they keep finding bodies uh, at one of at one of the bodies that they find, they mm-hmm. find um, like a brand new, brand spank new, clean business card for Ren, uh, and she said that it's an old, an old design. It's not a business card she used in what, like six months? She said or something. Yeah, it, it, yeah. A long time she hasn't used these business cards. So if somebody got her business card a long time ago and, and was putting it at it, the scene and put it at the scene. So that's kind of your first tell that there's something more going on as to why she's so invested in this case. Because she is very invested,
0: which is why she's giving all the other topsies that are on her plate to other people. Yeah, she's... Because she wants to focus on catching the Bayou Butcher, and the whole time you're like, well, why why are you specifically so invested? And I get it, like, you know, there are some probably investigators that really just want to, like, figure out specific cases, but she's a little... Too, too invested, and then there's you know like the personal belongings left at the cri- and it's her personal belongings left.
1: But so she finds this, she finds her business card, yep, and that's our first sign that there's something more going on here. She's super invested, but we don't know why yet. Uh-huh. Uh, so then it flips back to Jeremy's perspective. Uh, he's got Katie and Matt in his basement, uh, and he's gearing up for his. I don't know if he calls it the big event, but he's gearing up for his big hunting fest, his big hunting fest, his big hunting game that he's going to play with these people, uh, which is a lot of psychological warfare going on, Yeah, uh, which is that's very best stuff, but that's besides the point. Uh, But he talks about how he knows that his classmate, Emily is going to be the third person in this little game that he's playing. Um, And, Emily is his lab partner in one of their medical, uh, medical school classes. Uh, so being as they're both in medis- medical school, we know that Jeremy has a lot of knowledge of the human body, which is how he's able to lure people. And torture them torture without them, killing them. Torture them without killing them and then kill them as well. Uh, he uses a lot of his medical school knowledge to be effective in what he's doing. Yep. Uh, but he kidnaps Emily. Uh, And up, up until Emily, all of his victims had been really low people that were, I guess, considered low risk. They weren't, uh, you know, people that weren't necessarily from great families, didn't have people that were really looking for them, found, I think most of them found were, were finding them at like dive bars. Uh, So Emily was the first like high profile person that people would would 100% be like, where the heck did she go? Yeah. Uh, but he kidnaps her in broad fucking daylight in a parking in, garage. Like, a b- yeah,
0: yeah, after class.
1: After class in a parking garage, which is pretty damn bold of him. But he uh, kidnaps her, uh, uses chloroform to knock her out, and mm-hmm. then I think ketamine as well. He injects, injects her with ketamine to keep her even more knocked out. And then... That way she wouldn't remember how she she got... She wouldn't remember what happened, how she got there. Um, And then when she wakes up, she is in the swamp. Yep. And he's talking over... It's nighttime too, isn't it? Yeah, it's dark as as all hell outside. Yeah. They've got one... She has a flashlight, uh, and she wakes up, and Jeremy starts talking over these speakers in this swamp area, saying what Maddie said at the beginning, like, if you can get out... Before I find you, you're free, but I'm hunting you. Uh, so, good
0: luck. Your time starts now, essentially. Yeah. It's like the Hunger Games,
1: but... It It did give Hunger Games vibes. Yeah. It also... There is an episode of Criminal Minds very, very similar to this. I bet. Have you seen Criminal Minds? I've... No. Okay. There's an episode of Criminal Minds where these there's, like, two, like, hunters, mm-hmm. like, actual hunters out in somewhere on the East Coast that, like, kidnap people, throw them on some piece of land and start hunting them. Oh my like, goodness. it's actually huh. an episode on Criminal Minds.
0: Well, and I, I think that's how he got into his fascination with dead things. I think him and his dad, they talk about Jeremy's background a little bit because this is all on his parents' land. that he And his parents are dead, which is why he owns this house and owns this huge plot of land, and I think his dad would take him hunting, if I remember correctly. And then he was fascinated by, like, the animals that they would kill. Yeah, he he talked about how
1: he- And he loves to hunt. He liked hunting, but he wanted to dissect the animals, and everyone thought it was so weird, which is, like, the stereotypical, like, serial killer thing mm-hmm. to, like, be obsessed with, like, killing animals and cutting them open. Yep. Um,
0: kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer. But he... So I get I, I I see now how Jeremy is the way Jeremy is. Well, yeah.
1: We we see... She did a good job explaining his background and why he became the way he is uh, Mm -hmm. and what's going on in his psyche. But he... So he's got these three people in the swamp. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emily, who was the med student, ends up running into Katie and... They kind of team up. Um, Katie's very frantic. Emily's kind of got a one track well, mind. Like Katie's she...
0: been there the longer. time. Well, yeah, Katie.
1: Than... Katie had been uh, abducted like a week prior
0: to Emily, and she'd been in the basement a week, yep. two weeks prior, getting tortured, getting
1: tortured by with Jeremy. her
0: friend Matt.
1: Hmm.
0: Her well, yep. it doesn't matter. Matt's was Matt's another guy that was there. I don't know if they were friends. Yes, they were friends. Oh, okay. Yes.
1: Um. Uh, but Katie and Emily meet up. Uh, Emily's kind of got this one-track mind where she's like, Katie, like, let's get the heck out of here. Like, he's giving us an opportunity. We just have to go fast. But uh, Katie but, knows. But, Ka- but Katie knows that he's crazy. They're not going to get out. Uh, and she wants to find Matt. Yep. Uh, so eventually they run into Matt. Uh, and he's been chasing them all, thro- all throughout this thing. He uh, Well, Jeremy
0: knows where they well, are. Well, yeah, Jeremy
1: can see where they are. He's got cameras. Um, so I'm like, dude, that's not really hunting. That You're just cheating. Okay? <laughs> I don't think a serial killer cares about cheating. I don't think so Um, either, but I was like, you're a fraud. But he's been, so he's been following them, chasing them down, shooting at them. Um, But eventually they find Matt, and the three of them are, like, gonna start game planning, and then Jeremy shoots Matt in the head.
0: And Uh, then Matt
1: dies. And Matt's, Matt's big dead.
0: So Um, that means Katie freaks out So
1: Katie freaks out, but Emily, I'm pretty sure Emily just, like, grabs her and is like, let's, like, let's fucking go. But doesn't he... But then they keep going, and Katie also gets
0: killed. No, no, but doesn't he inject them with, like, muscle? Or, like, it... Not it... not yet. Oh. Not yet. Sorry. I like to jump ahead. <laughs> keep going.
1: So they keep running. Uh, Jeremy ends up catching up to them. Big surprise. He's got cameras. He knows exactly where they're at. They're on his land. Uh He kills Katie, and he says something along the lines of, it's just you and me, Emily. Like, I always knew it was going to be down to you. Uh, and he injects her with a, um, something that made her go, like, partially blind. It blurred her vision. But then he also in- tried to inject something into her spinal cord that would make her... Or like, paralyzed. Not, not into her spinal cord, but he was trying to sever her spinal cord below some, level, be- below some vertebrae to paralyze her. Uh, and he was just going to kind of leave her there for a while and then come back. Yep. Uh, so he leaves for the night, he comes back in the morning, and he sees her leaning up against a fence.
0: The electric the fence. The electric
1: fence. So he walks out there and sees she's not moving. He's like, oh shit, did she die? Like, that's that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to keep playing my torture game a little yeah, bit Yeah, because that's where his
0: medical background comes in, is he knew uh, where you could sever the...
1: The spinal cord and not kill them.
0: Yep. Yep. Or so he thought.
1: Or so he thought. Uh, but he keeps getting closer and sees that she's not moving, so he thinks that she's dead. But then she gets he gets even closer and realizes that's not Emily. That's Katie. and Emily's gone. So he messed up when he was trying to sever her spinal cord or injecting her. I don't remember which one it was that he did. Uh, he didn't hit her spinal cord, and she was able to get away. But it was an electric fence. So how did she get over the electric fence, Maddie?
0: Well. Wow. She used Katie's dead body as a... Bridge? Yeah. As a conductor? Is that how you... Is I that... don't
1: think... I think a conductor is the opposite of what she would want to do with that electricity. Oh, so as a... A barrier
0: yeah. to the electricity? Um, And basically, just... You... I mean, hey, you gotta do what you gotta do to survive.
1: Yeah, she, she put Katie's body on top of the electric Electri- fence and so crawled, the crawled bo- over her. So the
0: dead body got all the electrical current, and then uh, Emily just was able to go.
1: Yep. She was able to go on her way, uh, got away, and then we don't hear anything about Emily for quite a while nope. from there. Uh, it goes to Ren's perspective for quite a little bit. Yep. Um,
0: so then we're like, well, where's Emily? So
1: so yeah, we're like, where, where the heck is Emily? Well, going back to Ren's perspective, after this whole game, they found a body underneath a stage at some jazz festival, and... On this body, there was a smartwatch. So our good friend, Ren, decides that the best case scenario with an important piece of evidence is to touch it herself. Uh, So she she figures out the code to get into the smartwatch, and she sees that there's an alarm. Uh, So they have an alarm on the smartwatch that's counting down, and she's... There was also a map near the smartwatch of a cemetery in New Orleans with a plot number that was X or circled. Uh, So she's like, oh my god, that... This timer is leading us to the next victim. We have to get to this plot right now.
0: Before the timer runs out. Before the
1: timer runs out. Uh, So they, her and LaRue, LaRue. and the other police officers bolt over to the cemetery and find this plot. But there's, like, a newly dug grave. So they have to start digging.
0: Yep. And they only have, like... 20 minutes, I think, to dig out.
1: Like a a six-foot grave. Um... They start digging, and they get down to a casket, Yep. and they're able to get the top of the casket off, and they pull out some girl. I don't know if they ever told us her name. No. Nope, uh, but they, so. they pull a girl out, and they see that she's still alive, but just
0: barely. Yep. And so I, as the reader, thought that was Emily. I, was, I, thought, I don't know why I thought that. But... Well, because they didn't talk about Emily after yeah. that. We didn't know... We didn't know
1: what had happened to Emily. We knew she got out of
0: the. So I was like, maybe he caught up to her because mm-hmm. I know he, after he saw that Emily escaped from his little game, he went chasing after her to look for her. And so at this point, we don't know if he ever caught up to her. So I just assumed the person in the casket that they found was Emily, half a, like half alive.
1: Yeah. So but they yeah, I don't know who is. they take the girl in the casket to the hospital, and she dies shortly after. Um, because there was some weird drug in her system. Uh, and Ren says that she's only ever seen that drug one other time. Yep. Um, and she's, something is super weird about this drug and she keeps coming back to it and she's like, well, I've only ever seen it one time. There's got to be something more to this. So she looks back and she finds the case where that one specific drug, and I don't remember what the name of it was, um. I want to say Nightshade, but I don't think it was Nightshade. I think it was. It might have been Nightshade. That sounds very familiar. Um, But she finds the other case that uh, Nightshade was present in, and it was an older lady who supposedly committed suicide using Nightshade. And Ren's like, there's got to be a connection here. Uh, So she does some digging, and she finds that that woman's next of kin is her son, Jeremy. So she immediately is thinking... Jeremy is the guy who, he killed his mom, she didn't commit suicide with the nightshade, he killed her with the nightshade, and then he's killing this girl in the casket with the nightshade too. So there's their connection where she's like, this this guy is Jeremy for sure. Uh, But then she gets called to the hospital or something, and uh, LaRue or one of the other detectives has a piece of evidence that they found off of the girl in the casket's body, and it's a charm bracelet. And in the middle of a chapter...
0: This is what I do not like.
1: (laughs) Completely in the middle of a chapter, uh, Ren says, oh my god, that's my bracelet. Not in in those exact words. Uh, But we know that that bracelet originated from Emily. Uh, They talked about it when Emily was first introduced that she had a charm bracelet with an anatomical heart that had an E on it. Uh, And that was the bracelet that was found on this person in the casket. And Ren says, that's my bracelet. And it's like, oh. Oh. It, so that that was the author telling us that Ren is Emily.
0: Yeah. Um, and I had to do a double take. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I was like, Ren, how is that your bracelet? It's Emily's bracelet. And then I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, you're Emily. Ren um, is Emily.
1: So it was supposed to be this super crazy super, plot super twist. Super crazy plot twist. But it was introduced in a very bad spot. Uh, and not greatly explained until, like, a chapter and a half later when she goes to LaRue and says, hey, you remember that person that got away from the Bayou Butcher ten years ago? That was, that was me. me. Uh, which is where we find out that this is not only dual perspective, but dual timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, because up until this point, I thought that uh, Jeremy's hunting game and Wren's finding the bodies were happening at the same time. Uh, But we find out that The Hunting Game was actually 10 years earlier. Uh, Emily had gotten away, finished medical school, changed her name to Ren Muller, and became a forensic
0: pathologist,
1: who is now investigating the person who attempted to murder her, which is, like, a crazy conflict of interest. There is no way that in the real world—again, this is a fiction book— there is no way in the real world uh, a forensic pathologist would be able to investigate deaths or do autopsies on deaths related to somebody who tried to murder her 10 years earlier. But we, so we find out that Ren is Emily, uh, and that's how, and that's where we find out that she's so invested in finding the Bayou Butcher because he actually tried to murder her 10 years ago as well.
0: Um, Yep. Oh, that's what I was gonna go with. Um, That's why she is unable, because she knows who he is. She knows, well, She knows him as Cal. As Cal. He went
1: to medical school under a fake name of Cal, so she knew him as Cal, but she remembered Katie saying Jeremy. His name is
0: Jeremy, so that's why she's like, well, what the heck? So, like, she knows who the guy is, but she doesn't know where he lives. Can't read because it was in, it was pitch dark. Mm -hmm. She had no, like, it was in a bayou, which apparently is 99% of Louisiana. According to the book. According to the book. Louisiana
1: is all bayou. Again, don't know that that's accurate, but right. a lot of things in this book aren't.
0: I know. Uh, so she has no idea where he actually lives because she was knocked out when he kidnapped her, uh, which is why, because when I was reading it, I was like, well, why the hell isn't Ren figuring this out? Like, she knows the guy. Mm-hmm. Go t- t- go, go to his house. But then I remembered that she, she, she doesn't know. remember. She, d- she doesn't remember. So there's that little uh, tidbit.
1: Yeah, so she does, she knows who he is. She knows him as Cal, but she knows his real name is Jeremy. Uh she just doesn't know how to find him. So she tells LaRue everything that she knows and he and the other members of the police department do their little policey thing and <laughs> they find uh Jeremy's property and they know they know where he lives. So they go out there. Well, I think
0: they find that out though when they find out that he killed his mom with nightshade, and they knew where she lived. They
1: find out he killed his mom with nightshade. They were able to put two and two together, that it was probably the same Jeremy who went by Cal, who's actually Jeremy. Uh, So they were able to figure out that he was living on his parents' property because Emily remembered him telling her that during medical school. Uh, So they all go out to this property, and Ren goes with them to what is... Essentially an active crime scene, a uh, forensic pathologist who is not only emotionally involved in the case, but also we don't know that there's dead bodies out there yet. No reason for her to be there yet. But she goes with them to the scene and <laughs> she goes with them and And she's not a pol- like she's not she's not a police officer. She has no law enforcement training. She's a huge risk. A huge risk for everybody a huge safety risk for all of the other police there, because not only do they have to protect themselves and look for a bad guy, but they also have to protect her dumbass because she wanted to come with because she's too invested in finding this guy that tried to kill her. And it's like, dude, you know know when to put your ego aside and let let people do their own jobs. Yep. Anyways, they they find his house, they go through the house, they don't uh they don't find him inside the house. But then they hear music, so they go outside into this swampy area where he had been playing his
0: but now hu- it's daylight his, his
1: hunting games uh it's daylight now um and Ren and larue see a dead body laying in like the middle of this swampy field so they run up to it and not him it's it's not Jeremy. Uh, they, I'm sure they were probably hoping that Jeremy took care of himself and he was just laying dead in his own field. Uh, but they run out to
0: this- Well, store. we all know it's not that easy. <laughs>
1: no, it's, not, it's never that easy. Nope. Uh, but they go out and Ren and LaRue are looking at this dead body trying to figure out, you know, time of death and who he is and what killed him. And then Jeremy comes out.
0: <laughs> Jeremy comes out and she, Ren- is face-to-face now with Jeremy for the first time in ten years. And she kind of is panicking, which rightfully so, I get that. Um, and so LaRue shouts, shoot him. She apparently has a gun. Uh, again, yeah, Where where the hell did her gun come I don't from? Know. I don't I don't remember her getting a gun. I Anyways, don't know. And so she... She doesn't
1: shoot him, though. She freezes. And another officer shoots him in the chest.
0: Ah, oh, that's right, that's right. And she sees him go uh, tumbling under this brush, this, like, thing, this big bush. bush. And uh, they go chasing after him behind the bush. Uh, They get up to the body, because they shot him in the chest, so they're like, he has to be dead. Um, They go behind the brush, and they do see a dead body, but they see a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head presumably self-inflicted yeah we don't know for sure well they think it's for sure but anyway um then they do some investigating and then they're like wait a second this isn't jeremy this is some other person but then they also realize how how do they know it's not jeremy though oh that's an important part because ren is like well let's check for the bullet wound in the chest, right? Because we just shot him in the chest. So they lift up the guy's shirt, and there's no gunshot wound to the chest. There's only the gunshot wound in the head. So they're like, well, where is our guy then? Like, yeah. this, who, who, is who is this, is this guy, guy? But yeah. also, where is Jeremy? So clearly Jeremy escaped. Yeah, he, he was planning this. But um. how did he escape? With the gunshot wound to the chest, apparently he was wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, and now he's just running. So he got away.
1: Yeah, he he got away. Uh, he got didn't shot, die. Didn't die. Got away. Uh, very a very open ended,
0: and that's how it ends.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very open ended ending, I guess. Obviously, to allow Elena to write. A sequel uh whether she makes it a series or just a sequel i don't know uh but it's open-ended to the point where she will probably write another book probably uh, from wren's perspective and the bayou butcher's perspective but there were <laughs> I, I feel like we were all over the place with talking about this but that's just how that's just how the book is it's there's this so, book
0: is all over the place the book is
1: all over the place and it's i didn't hate the concept no i think i, I liked the concept of it it was just not well written. No, um, I don't know if she didn't have an editor or if it was just not a very good editor. Um, but I think that moving forward, she should probably get a really good editor to uh, proofread, to proof well, to pro- to proofread, to fact check, and to point out some of the plot holes before it gets published. Because uh, there's a lot that
0: was like left like there's a lot left
1: up to question who's the
0: random guy in the bush that got shot in the head who's the random dead body in the in the middle of the
1: swamp swamp. yeah it's uh we do we do find out at the end of the book that
0: who's the person under the stage that they found at the jazz fest yeah
1: there there's a lot that they don't tell us about who Ren is actually um dealing with as far as like the deceased people uh, we do find out at the end of the book, though, that Jeremy, since Emily got away 10 years ago, Jeremy has essentially been stalking her. He's obsessed with her. He, She is the one that got away in the murderous sense, not in the I'm in love with you sense. And he's been stalking her and wants to kill her. Uh, but he's been stalking her for 10 years, and it's. I'm assuming in the second book it's going to be more of this cat and mouse game where he wants to kill her and she wants to mm-hmm. catch him. Again, didn't hate the concept of the book. I just think it could have been better executed. I think Jeremy's perspective was written really well, and I think his perspective was really interesting. Uh, Ren's perspective just needed a little more refining on the editing aspect and the research aspect. Uh, With that being said, though, Maddie, what did you rate this book?
0: Well, I rated it a three out of five stars, only because I... Am not as knowledgeable as you are in this field. So I was like, sure. Yeah, this all sounds pretty up to code. And I, I was very into it. I, I was captivated and I was wanting to read what happens next. Uh, I did actually really like the plot twist. I just wish it wasn't just so thrown in there randomly in the middle of a chapter. I think that could have, there's a lot of things that, um, Elena Urquhart could have done differently. Um, not necessarily, not a bad book, not my favorite, not a great book, just kind of a myth, an average, an average book. What about you? I rated it two stars.
1: I, I mean, I've pretty much already said what I disliked about the book. <laughs> I do think I will read the second book when or if it's published. Uh, I hope for the author's sake that she takes some of the criticism that was given in all of the reviews for the book. I hope she takes it and runs with it and makes the second book fill some of those plot holes and inaccuracies because I do think that she could be a good author. Um, Mm -hmm. Her plot was engaging. I listened to it as an audio book. I didn't read the actual physical copy, uh, but I listened to it in a very short period of time while I was at work one day. Uh, And I, it was it kept my interest the whole time. It was just the little inaccuracies that made me dislike it. So I I hope the second book is better, um, but I guess we'll have to wait for it to be published, and
0: then we will do a podcast on it,
1: and maybe we'll maybe we'll do a follow up on it. Um, but yeah, if you want to, if you want a if you want to read an interesting book, all in all, Butcher in the Wren not my favorite, not the worst book not the worst book I've ever read. Also not my favorite book I've ever read. I think for most people, it could be a really, really good book. I, I I think going into it, I, because I work in the field, I'm automatically going to be more critical of it than other people, just Mm -hmm. because it's essentially what I do when I go to work every single day. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. And so that's why I'm a little more critical of it. I do think that it was decent. It was a decent book. Um, I hope she improves in the next one, and mm. guess that's all I got to say about it. Pointing—it's our opinion of the book. Yeah. Uh, pointing out some things that I didn't like about it and that I think could have been done better, and you think could have been done better. But oh, yeah,
0: and I—I I, I love a good thriller. Thriller I, is one of my favorite. I do love romance thriller, books. thriller.
1: mystery. I love mystery thriller books. They—they—they
0: they pull me in really easily. But with that being said. I'm way more critical of thriller books only because there's a lot that's already been done before. And you have to have a very compelling plot twist. You have to have compelling characters. You gotta have, like, factual information. Because you have to have way more facts in a crime book. It takes
1: a lot to write a really good Uh mystery thriller book because there's so many out there. Yeah, Like, there's, there are so many plots that have been done and redone 1,500 times.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't
1: know if anyone else has ever written a book similar to this. I know I mentioned the Criminal Minds episode that was kind of similar to it. I I think there's potential. Yeah. In, I think there's potential with the book. It's in a good spot to move forward and get better. Uh, this one just wasn't my favorite.
0: No. And I do want to say before we sign off, this book, I read it as a physical book. Natalie read it as a audiobook, but the physical copy is only uh, 242. And I don't know about you, but this is a very complex story with a lot of uh, complex subplots. And I think if you want a good detailed thriller mystery, it's got to be more than at least 300. You cannot write it under 300 pages without giving all the details. So I feel like it was just a very rushed like yeah,
1: it, it could have been drawn out more and given more details in some spots, but at the same time, there was a lot of almost unnecessary descriptions holding your hand at some point to try and get you from point A to point B to understand what's going on, mm-hmm. and I don't like that in my books. I like having to think a little bit and draw my own conclusions and figure out what, what you're trying to tell me. Yep. I don't like you saying, this is because of this, and that's how I know this. Um, I don't want my hand to be held while I'm reading a book that's supposed to make you think.
0: Especially, yeah, with a mystery. Yeah. You're with, supposed to figure a, it out yourself. The
1: fun part about the mystery is, like, trying to figure it out yourself. Yeah. Uh, and this one was,
0: for a me, for me, pretty
1: predictable. Yeah. Um, I
0: can see that. But
1: also very, very fast-paced and yet slow at the same time. <laughs> I think we've said enough about it. I think we have, too. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks for listening to Two Friends in a Book. Uh, we uh, The next book we're going to be talking about in our next episode is They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera.
0: Is that Silvera, yeah.
1: You'll get episode three when you get episode three. And you'll like that. And you'll like it. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.